Whether you're an atheist, an agnostic, or a devoted disciple, one thing all of us have to agree on is that Jesus of Nazareth is the most dominant figure in all of world history. Why is this the case? Where can we gain primary access to his life? Can we trust these sources? With our study leader Dave Wurtson, we are going to open up a first century document and begin to examine the birth narratives of Mary's child. There's no way that we can know what Christ is like if we don't go back to the documents and look very carefully at what he revealed about himself. We began in a very unusual place. We began 800 years before Christ came into the world. And we looked at what I believe is one of the strongest cynical skeptics that's ever written about the life of Christ. In Isaiah chapter 53, we have a Jewish person who begins the account saying, we didn't believe the record. We didn't recognize him. We began to focus on that skeptic's headline for the birth narratives concerning Jesus. And that headline would go like this. He grew up as a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. We talked about the concept of a root out of dry ground. And it prepares us for the coming of Christ, which from a secular standpoint would not have made headline news. Now the birth of Jesus is making headline news. For example, if you look at the newspaper, it'll start talking about pilgrims invading the city of Bethlehem. And you'll have hundreds of thousands of people gathering in the city of Jerusalem to celebrate the holiday about the birthday of our Savior. And you're going to have accounts in the secular newspaper. You'll have a lot of editorials. The reality of the matter is that Jesus' birth is very well known. But in the first century, that was not so. In the secular press of the first century, there would hardly be a line in there about the birth of Jesus. If anything, it might make some of the, the way out papers, maybe the Enquirer or something like that, who might talk about some strange people who about nine months before the birth of Jesus were talking about some strange events up there in Galilee, which was on the other side of the tracks. I think it's very important for us to try to go back and get a hold of what the true historical account of the birth of the Savior was about. And for the popular, the powerful, for the political powers of the day, it was not that big an event. And yet I think in looking at that, we can miss the fact that for those whose hearts were prepared, God did give a proper announcement. In fact, I think as we look at the Christmas story, there's someone's birth in the Christmas story that is often forgotten. Because often we read like the account in Matthew, we often read the account in Luke, and we forget that there was someone else who was born at about the same time of Christ, a little bit before him, he was just a little bit older than Jesus, and his birth is very important. In fact, when we open up to the Gospel of Luke, and as we begin the account concerning the life of Christ, and you begin to think about the birth narratives, Dr. Luke goes back farther than anyone else. So as we look at Luke chapter 1, we focus first of all on a very important question which is a question that we need to ask ourselves as we begin thinking about the life of Christ. Can we trust the narratives? 
Can we believe the account concerning the birth of Jesus, concerning His life, concerning His death, concerning His resurrection? And Luke begins as a doctor, a man of letters, an educated man, by wrestling with that question. And then he goes in and talks about a very important birth, and that's the birth of John the Baptist. Two important questions. One, can we trust the birth narratives concerning Jesus? And if so, why? Second of all, I want to focus on the issue, what was the significance of John the Baptist's birth? His birth in Dr. Luke's account is very prominent. And it's important for a very important purpose because Luke believed that John the Baptist was like a trumpeter, a trumpeter that went before the king. And for those that were ready to listen, they should have been prepared because the herald had sounded his trumpet call and anyone whose heart was receptive could hear. Now let's begin with that first question. Look at Luke chapter 1 and let's begin with the introduction of verses 1 through 4. And this account is written in very classical Greek. And I think it's done that way for a very specific reason. Some of you here have gone to university and you've been exposed to cynicism and agnosticism. If you take some introductory courses to the life of Christ, you're going to hear things like they're just based upon legend. You really can't depend upon them. And many times those statements are made without any balance. In other words, they'll present one scholar who says these accounts are all legend, but they don't tell you about many other scholars. In fact, in our day, hundreds of scholars who have examined the most intense attack that could ever be made against ancient literature. If any documents have been scrutinized and torn apart and examined, this book that we're studying that's faced that. There's not a university in the world, there's not a university in our land or in Europe that doesn't have major chairs of New Testament. And for the past hundred years, they have put the New Testament under excruciating observation. What's coming out of that? In some of the schools, for example, like Tübingen, who about a hundred years ago in Germany began a school which tore the New Testament apart, said that almost all of it was just hearsay, almost all of it was mythological, a major school that denied the historicity even of the life of Christ in many ways, saying that most of it was all legend, Today, some of the professors in that school are coming back almost full circle and saying that they're coming to believe that much of the New Testament is historical. And the narratives concerning Jesus is the only Jesus that we really have. What I want us to realize is what makes this Christmas season so important is that it's true. I want you to be very clear on this because I know that there are men in my profession who at this season will tell you the story of Christmas. They'll tell you about the birth of Christ. They'll tell you about his life. And yet if you were to sit down over coffee with them and say, do you really believe it happened? Do you believe Jesus was really born of a virgin? Do you believe that Jesus really lived in heaven with God the Father before he came into this world? Do you genuinely believe that in history, God invaded in the person of his son? Do you genuinely believe that? And many pastors would say, no, to be honest with you, I think it's a story. I think it makes people feel good, and I become very skillful at telling the story. What I want you to know from the depths of my heart is I think that takes all the meaning out of Christmas. 
Because one of the things that blesses my heart more than anything else at this time of the year is I know lots of legends. I know lots of stories, and I tell many of them to my kids. And I love imagination, and I love the power of a story and what it can do. But I'm so glad that when I sit down and share the account that we're beginning to focus so much on at this time of the year, I can go on and say, you know, kids, it's not just a story. It has all the wonder of a Spielberg dramatic plot. It has all the twist and all the, the ingenious creativity of a fantastic novel. But the incredible thing about this is that it actually happened. It's true. And I want to challenge every one of you to drink very deeply from that well and to ask yourself, do I believe it? And Dr. Luke wrestles with that question that I think any intelligent person needs to ask. Is it true? Can I depend upon it? He's writing to a, probably a very wealthy man named Theophilus. And Theophilus, the name means lover of God. Whether there's any significance in that name, it's hard to tell. Possibly he was Luke's literary patron, kind of like a publisher that was going to be responsible for this work. But Luke begins by writing a brief introduction to this learned, educated man. And he writes in keeping with that purpose in very high Greek, and he begins like this. Many have undertaken to draw up the account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. Notice that he's telling us that there are many actions, many deeds that Luke acknowledges were fulfilled among his people. In his generation. I don't think Dr. Luke is saying that he personally was an eyewitness of these accounts. But as we begin this book, the very first thing you need to get a hold of is you're listening to a writer who was not many years divorced from the miraculous activities and actions of God in history. And he's telling Theophilus that many have undertaken to write an account concerning the birth and the life and the death and resurrection of Christ. He's not demeaning the work that they have done, but he's acknowledging that these things were not done in a corner, though the birth of Christ was obscure as his life developed and his death took place and the resurrection took place. These events of God became very well known and there was a very strong group of people who carefully noted all the events and all the details that we have recorded in our Gospels. He goes on, just as they were handed down to us by those who were eyewitnesses and servants of the Word. I think Luke is giving us an insight into how we have the Gospels. You see, in our day, we're so used to computers and being able to hit buttons and having things come out on the printed page that our oral traditions aren't very accurate. In fact, Mary always teases me because, like, if I go away somewhere and I come back and I give an account, if the boys have been with me or if Mary's been with me, then as I'm going through the message, I can see them going like this or, okay, because my oral traditions aren't that great. And sometimes I say, well, it's just authorial freedom. And I didn't twist it very far, but sometimes it's just because I don't remember very accurately, Okay. But in the first century, they trained their minds very carefully in oral tradition. For example, much of the Old Testament was passed on for generations. Now, it was written down, I believe, in an early period. 
But in much of Judaism for centuries in the Old Testament, they passed it on by oral tradition. In fact, the pointing system of the Old Testament was passed on for about 800 years after the language was used, and it was passed on with unbelievable accuracy because they took oral tradition very seriously. They would make their little kids memorize a story orally. They would tell it to them orally, make them repeat it. They would go through this over and over again. And what Luke is telling us is that after the events of Jesus' life, and as the apostles began to tell the story, they would tell it over and over again, and it was done with minute accuracy. So Luke is assuring us that though it wasn't written down immediately, like it wasn't written down in 34 A.D., it possibly that some of the earliest Gospels came maybe 15, 20 years later, but what Luke is telling us concerning that gap between 34 and the 50s is that there was a very careful tradition and it had accountability and they very accurately passed on the accounts concerning Jesus. Now that's important because what Luke is claiming is that as we look in this book and begin to look at the accounts concerning Jesus, we have eyewitnesses who actually experienced, actually saw these events that began accurately telling the story. Luke has come in contact with these eyewitnesses. And he also knows of other gospel accounts who have taken it in their hand to write down this oral tradition. I believe that's possible, possibly where we got Matthew and Mark. Uh, those accounts, possibly some other material that was not, that's incorporated within the Gospels that we have, but is not labeled as a book as such. Maybe an, an oral source concerning the sayings of Jesus. But what I want you to understand is that Luke is claiming as an educated man that he knew the eyewitnesses of the events he tells us about. Dr. Luke was a man that was with Paul, for example, in Caesarea for about two years during Paul's imprisonment. Caesarea is just about an hour and a half trip, two-hour trip from Jerusalem. So Dr. Luke was a man who could have gone up to Jerusalem and could have met with Mary, for example, the mother of Jesus. He could have had an interview with Elizabeth. He would have known Peter. He would have known James, for example, the brother of the Lord. Now that's very important because Dr. Luke is telling us as you read these accounts, he has carefully recorded this oral tradition. He knows those who were eyewitnesses of the events, and that is underscoring the validity of the account. And that's important to me, because it underscores what I shared with you earlier. I believe it's not just a story. It's not embellished myth, but it's true. And that brings great confidence into my heart. Now, in verse 3, Dr. Luke says this, Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account, Most Excellent Theophilus. Why? So that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. What Dr. Luke said is that many others have gotten the accounts together. They've written an orderly presentation. They've done it from their perspective. I believe that the Holy Spirit is laying it upon my heart to write another account which will be carefully investigated. And what Dr. Luke is saying is that he himself did 
what I was just sharing with you, that he carried out interviews, that he talked with some of the eyewitnesses, that he carefully cross-checked his sources. And he's telling us, I'm now going to write for you, Theophilus, a very accurate, a very orderly account concerning the birth of Christ all the way through to his ascension that you can depend upon. And he tells Theophilus why he's doing that. Why? Because I want you to know for sure. And that makes the Christian faith so different from other religions. And my prayer is that every single one of you will know for sure. I remember Barry Hollihan one time with a fellow that was on drugs down in Brazil. He was running drugs and he got thrown into jail and they put him on the parrot's perch. They turned him upside down and hung him by his feet. And George Tice, one of the World Life missionaries, heard about this fella, went to prison and shared Christ with him. And Barry came to know Christ. And by a miracle of God, he was released from prison. Because in Brazil, if you get in trouble with drugs, that's it. Somehow Barry got out. And Barry, instead of being a drug pusher, became a Jesus pusher, you might say. He became an evangelist. He began sharing Christ. And one of the things that Barry did when he came to the United States was to travel with the Word of Life group. And he shared the book of Revelation. He was like the evangelist for a Revelation tour. And there's a line that Barry used in that musical that I'll never forget. He went all the way through the presentation of the gospel about how Christ had died for us and how Christ had rose again. He went all the way through how we could know Christ in a personal way. And then he just stopped. And he said, you know, I know that some of you don't believe this is true. And then he said this, but don't you wish you could? Don't you wish that all the joy and all the celebration and all the hope that there's a man who actually conquered death, don't you wish it were true? Tears came to my eyes because I couldn't help but put the whole story together, which a lot of the people in the audience couldn't do. Here was a man who had been hanging upside down for pushing drugs. And a man came and shared the story that Christmas is all about. And that man's life was totally new. And here he stood before an audience and said, Don't you wish that you could believe it were true? And Dr. Luke comes to us and says, Theophilus, O lover of God, many of you are lovers of God. You're Theophiluses, you might say, and Theophilines, okay? You're lovers of God, and God comes to every one of you. Don't you wish you could believe it were true? And Dr. Luke says, oh, lovers of God, I'm writing to you so that you can know for certainty, for a certainty, that it's true. I pray that that reality would just wash over your life. I find that as I dwell on that, as I meditate on that, that it gives me some of the most deepest strength, some of the most deepest joys. It challenges me. It gives me the courage to live. It lifts me up from depression. It gives me so much purpose. And it causes the family warmth of Christmas not to evaporate into cynical middle age. Oh, Christmas never really measures up because it's true. So can you believe the accounts? The first question, are the accounts historically reliable? We have a man who was a physician, an educated man, who said, I know the eyewitnesses. I've carefully investigated their stories. I've put it all together. And he says, it's true. And you can count on my account. And I challenge you to study his account. 
If you're a skeptic, I would challenge you to say, if there is a God and Luke claims to be a truth teller, then God, if you're really there, as I read the account of the story of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke, if you're really there, open my heart. And I believe with all my heart that if you'll ask God, if you're there, and if you really want to know the truth, that you'll come to believe that Jesus truly is the Savior from our sins. Now, the account begins in a strange way. You would think that Dr. Luke would begin his account by talking about the birth of Christ, but he doesn't. He begins his account by talking about the birth of someone else. And who might that be? What was the purpose of John the Baptist? Why was John the Baptist born? He was to be a forerunner. Okay, in the ancient world, when you send a king, for example, the king is getting ready to come through the city, and the people are supposed to acknowledge the king, they would send a herald. They would send a crier. And he would run through the streets. The king is coming. The king is coming. And he would prepare the people because you don't want a king to come and have people unprepared. So this is the purpose of John the Baptist. But God is so creative that he doesn't just have John born to just any old couple. He doesn't have him born, for example, to a 22-year-old husband and a young 18-year-old girl. Instead, he has something very special. What God does is he has a special surprise for the silver and golden group. The account begins here in verse 5. Look at it. In the time of Herod, the king of Judea, that's Herod the Great, the infamous King Herod that's going to kill all the babies, there was a priest named Zechariah, which means Yahweh remembers or the Lord remembers, who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Can't you see this priestly pious, religious couple. Both of them were upright in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commandments and regulations blamelessly. You got the picture? We've got an elderly, mature couple, far beyond childbearing age. They're the ideal Jewish Old Testament saints. This is a priest. He's of the order of Abijah. There were 24 courses of priests. And he's in the sixth course, the course of Abijah. Twice a year he comes up to the temple and carries out for a week of ministry the service by the altar. He carries out in his turn the sacrifices. But only once in his lifetime will he be able to go into the holy place, not the holy of holies, but the holy place in the center of the holy place, which is the foyer to the holy of holies, there's an altar. Once in his lifetime, possibly, if the lot comes to him, he'll be able to go into that place and offer incense. And he's a blameless man. All of his life, he's faithfully served the Lord. His wife is a descendant of Aaron. She's a blue blood. But they had a prayer all their life. But I think that by this time, they quit praying. You see, when they were young, they would pray. Elizabeth would pray. With Sarah from Genesis, she would pray with Hannah from 1 Samuel chapter 1. She would pray with all the barren Israelite women down through the centuries. Oh, Lord, bless me with a child. And she and Zechariah prayed that again and again and again. But now the prayer cannot be answered because they're too old. And I'm sure that it's possible. I, I think it's going to be fun to sit down and talk with Zechariah 
and have him share with us. I'd really like to ask him, Zechariah, did you quit praying? Did you give up hope? I think he probably did. In fact, this fella not only didn't have a kid, but he also didn't get chosen. Every year, the two weeks he ministered, they would throw the lot, and he never was chosen. Maybe he's like some of us. Do you ever go through times in your Christian life where you pray, but it seems like there's stone above your head? You ask the Lord about requests, and you know the request is right on the money. For example, there wasn't hardly anything in the Old Testament that you could pray more holy and more in tune with the heart of God than for kids because Psalm 127 says that children are a good gift from the Lord. Genesis chapter 1, the very first command said, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. If ever there was a request that an Old Testament saint could pray and know it was in the will of the Lord, it was to have kids. So Zechariah and Elizabeth prayed in the will of the Lord. They prayed consistently with God's word. Nothing happened. That happens to me sometimes. I think it happens to you. And you can think it's a disaster. God doesn't answer prayer. I get angry at times. How about you? Sometimes I say, well, Lord, I'm not going to pray anymore. If you're not going to do what I want you to do, then I'm not going to pray. And I don't really talk to him quite that realistically. But that's really what's happening in my heart. I believe that maybe some of you are doing that today. You know what the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth tell us? If God says no, there's a reason. Because God wanted to do a whole lot more for Zechariah and Elizabeth than just give them any old baby son. You see, he wanted them to go down into the pages of the history of the Messiah as the godly Hebrew priestly family that gave birth to the most blessed man in the Old Covenant, John. The name John means Yahweh is gracious. And God wanted to work a miracle, something that Zechariah and Elizabeth could never expect. You know how this story goes? The account goes on and tells us in verse 8 that once Zechariah's division was on duty, he was serving as a priest before God, and he was chosen by lot to go in, as the custom of the priesthood was, to go into the temple of the Lord and to burn incense. When the time came for the burning of incense, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. Now what you want to picture here is that Zechariah goes in and he puts some incense, kind of like some of the teenagers. Some of you teenagers might have incense in your room, makes your room smell. You know, it gets rid of all the dirty socks smell and everything that your parents were always telling you to pick up. Okay? He put some incense on the altar, and this beautiful aroma went up. He would lie flat down and pray, because in the Old Testament, incense is a symbol, is a picture of the prayer of the people of Israel. Luke's account tells us that the people are all gathered outside. He tells us that the people are praying outside. Zechariah is praying. Now, while he's praying, he peaked a little bit, I guess, because there at the right hand of the altar, which is the side of blessing, the side of favor from the Lord, an angel appears. Now, something that you've got to get a hold of in the birth narratives of Jesus and in the life of Jesus is that the interface between heaven and this earth is permeable for a period of time. You see, some of you might have seen an angel, but I don't think that that's a normal occurrence in my life or in your life. 
But you see, one of the basic ideas about the birth of Jesus and the birth of John is that God is breaking through the barrier and he's invading this earthly life. And so if you're going to believe in Jesus, one of the ideas that you need to get through your head is you don't know everything about angels. You see, a lot of critical scholars will say, well, the story has to be myth because an angel appears. If you're going to believe that God has a son who lives with him in heaven, and if you're going to believe that God is a great king that has servants, like a great court, if you're going to believe that that God in heaven wants to communicate with this world and to touch this world, it would only make sense that an angel from his court, which just simply means messenger, a proclaimer, a speaker, a servant, it only makes sense that he would send one of his messengers to get things ready. If you're going to believe in the account of Jesus, angels, you don't just chalk them out. And as I grow older, I become more and more a believer in the reality that God can do what he wants to do, and I'm getting over a little bit of my arrogance that would say, well, God, you can't do that. You can't make angels appear. You say, well, Dave, there's other accounts that talk about heavenly visitors. You can read Greek mythology, and it talks about heavenly visitors. You can read Greek mythology, and it will even talk about gods that unite with women. And that's true, and I've read those accounts. And I challenge you, you read the accounts and then compare them with the account we're studying today. Analyze it for yourself. I'd also ask you to think about this. If you were the enemy, if you were Satan, and you started to get an inkling of what God was doing, don't you think you'd put in some counterfeit accounts as well? Don't you think you'd tell some stories of your own that would twist the truth a little bit? You see, it's a very subtle game, this game of what is spiritually true. And you're going to decide who's going to win that deep in your own heart. And what I'm sharing with you is that if I believe in a Heavenly Father, it only makes sense that He would send one of His servants into this world to prepare this earth, especially those who would be involved for that coming. Zechariah's response to the angel is exactly the way I would expect a man to respond. It says that he began to shake. He was terrified and he shook with fear. And I love the way the angels... Angels, this is standard angel introduction. The angel appears, and they're a little bit of their heavenly glory, not all of it, but a little bit, and it knocks someone flat. They're scared to death, which all of us would be. And the angel begins, don't be afraid. Now that's a super thing, because I'm afraid about this transition to the next world and into the eternal kingdom. And isn't it great that these messengers that come from that kingdom, when they appear to a human being and the human being is knocked flat, the angel says, I don't want you to be afraid. And look what Gabriel tells Zechariah. He says, don't be afraid in verse 13. Zechariah, your prayer has been heard. I'm not sure whether that was the prayer for the redemption of Israel that he might have been praying at that moment because I think he probably quit praying for his son, but God's going to put it all together. God's going to not only answer his prayer from earlier in his life, he's now going to answer the prayer for the redemption of Israel as well. He says, your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. I'm sure he dropped his teeth at that point. False teeth, probably. And you were to give him the name John, which means Yahweh is gracious, like I was just sharing with you. He will be a joy and a delight to you. 
I'm sure that was true. They were probably like grandparents. And they didn't spoil him because of the way that he lived his life. I'm sure that he was kind of an ascetic. But I'm sure that for this elderly couple, he was their pride and their joy. But not only Zechariah and Elizabeth will rejoice, many will rejoice because of his birth. Why? Because he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. It's almost a reminder of Dr. Luke's friends that tells us in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, don't be drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. And in the New Testament, there's an idea is that something's going to control your life. If you're not controlled by the Holy Spirit of God, if you're not drunk on His joy and His peace and His love and His meaning in your life, then you're going to fill the vacuum in your life with something else. And it's very easy to fill it with wine, with alcohol, with intoxicating beverage. In the New Testament, there's a juxtaposition, a contrast between a life controlled by the Holy Spirit and a life controlled with wine or intoxication. And what the angel tells Zechariah is your boy, from the time he's just a little baby, which tells us a lot about the importance to God of little babies and how they do have personal existence because this baby was filled with the Holy Spirit in the womb of his mother. And I don't understand all the theological implications of that. You might want to ask God about that when we get to heaven. But if it tells us anything, it says that when one of our precious women is carrying a little one in their womb, that it's far more than just an appendage. Because God is giving the promise of a child saying, this child will be filled with the Holy Spirit from the time he's in the womb of Elizabeth. Which meant that God had a plan, he had a purpose, and what a tragedy it would have been for an abortion to take place at that time. So here in a passage where we would never even think about a very important social issue that's facing our country, we have God explaining to us his heart that he's concerned about infants from the time of their conception. And John the Baptist was a special infant that from the beginning of this world had a specific purpose in the heart of God. Many of the people of Israel he will bring back to the Lord their God. Verse 16. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah. Just like the prophet Elijah, the ascetic prophet of the Old Testament that conquered the prophets of Baal, that turned the hearts of Israel from Baal, the idol Baal, back to the true God, John the Baptist will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. I want you to look very carefully at those verses. The purpose of John the Baptist's life was to turn the hearts of the fathers back towards their children. You know, I think if ever there was a need for that, it's today. You know what the Lord wants to do in your heart? You know what God wants to do in your heart? God wants to take your heart and turn it back towards your kids. That's what the story of Christmas is all about. Dads and grandfathers, you know the most important thing you can do for your kids is to give them your heart. You know what Satan has convinced the whole lot of you dads? You've done your part. You say, what do you mean, Dave? What have I done? You think you've done your part if you get up in the morning and you go to work and you earn the bucks. 
and you work a good eight hours a day. And I want to tell you, the Bible says if you don't do that, and if you don't provide for your own family, you're worse than an unbeliever. So I really appreciate every one of us that get up early, that go to work, and we work diligently to provide for our family. But a lot of you come home, and it's when you walk in the door, it's like you checked off time. You are now off. And now it's the wife's responsibility. She raises the kids. She does everything in the house. She makes almost all the major decisions for the family. And the worst thing of all is you are off spiritually. In other words, when it comes time to put the kids to bed, dad might already be asleep in his lazy boy. Or he's deeply engrossed in a murder mystery that he can't leave for just 20 minutes. And so the kids trot off to bed, and maybe mom walks into that bedroom and has a brief prayer. And maybe mom at holiday season remembers at mealtime, oh yeah, maybe we should pray. You know what the purpose of John the Baptist's ministry was? It was to say that every one of us is fathers. You got a responsibility. And I want to turn the hearts of the fathers back to their children. You see, the greatest thing that your kids need is a daddy's love. And the essence of a daddy's love is to do this. It's to tell your kids the account of the life of Jesus. You see, the greatest gift that you can ever give your kids at Christmas time is a daddy that really knows the account of Jesus Christ, that knows the meaning of his birth, that knows the meaning of his life, that knows the meaning of his death, and knows the meaning of his resurrection. The greatest thing that you can give to your children is that teaching. And daddies, I want all of you to know, if you're in that home, your kids, the vast majority of your kids will believe what you believe when they reach maturity. You see, if you say, no, we send them off to church and we're going to train them, they'll train them, they'll tell them the story of Jesus, they'll tell them about Christmas, and that'll take care of all that spiritual stuff. You're wrong. Because the vast majority of your kids will believe when they reach maturity, both boys and girls, if you're in that home, they'll believe pretty much what dad believes. And that's why way back in ancient Israel, it's Abraham that passes on the story. It's Isaac that passes on the story. It's Jacob that passes on the story. When you get to Deuteronomy chapter 6, it says, Fathers, teach your children. When you get up in the morning, when you eat lunch, when you walk about during the day, when you go to bed, fathers, teach your children the spiritual realities of life. And the amazing thing, in fact, I never caught it until I was preparing for this week. The essence of John the Baptist's ministry was to take a generation of Israelite fathers that had forgotten what they were supposed to do. You see, the nation of Israel in the first century was hot to trot about Roman rule. They were all uptight about the oppression politically. The fathers were involved in the movement of the zealots. They were also involved in making a living. But John the Baptist went everywhere and he said this, I want you to repent because the kingdom of God is at hand. And I want you to get back to real family living 
And I want you to train your children in the biblical accounts concerning spiritual reality. The essence of that spiritual reality is in the words of Luke chapter 1, verse 76 through 79. Zechariah, as a father, is doing exactly what the angel said. He's calling his children back to the life of wisdom, back to the life of godliness. And he said this, And you, my child, this is Zechariah speaking to his young son, who he's just circumcised. And you, my child, that would be John, will be called a prophet of the Most High, that is God. For you will go on before the Lord, a statement of the deity of Christ. You will go on before the Lord, the Messiah, to prepare the way for him. Now, what's the purpose of the Messiah? To give his people the knowledge of salvation. And what is salvation? It's the forgiveness, through the forgiveness of our sins. Because of the tender mercy of God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. My prayer is that in every one of our homes there would be peace. Now what generates peace in a home? It's the quiet togetherness of knowing I'm clean. Of knowing that my sin has been forgiven. And Zechariah predicted that his little baby son, on the day when he was circumcised, that that son would grow and would become a herald, would become a proclaimer that would go through the first century world and say the king has come. And the essence of the king's message, the essence of his ministry, is to show you the gracious mercy of God. God is merciful towards every one of us. Some of you have just gone through some real serious struggles in your life. And some of you are sitting there and you're going, Dave, if you only knew. If you only knew some of the things that I've done. That's fine for you to say. You talk about praying with your kids. You talk about teaching your kids about Jesus. I can never do that. Because my life is so messed up. It's so confused. How long are you going to use that as an excuse? God would never let me in. Good people, they're religious. Bad people like me, we're not religious. How long are you going to use that as an excuse? Because God at this Christmas season, the life of John the Baptist and the life of Jesus comes to you and says, that's why I came. I didn't come to call the righteous to repentance. I came to call the sinners, and we're all that way. And God is not coming to you at this Christmas season and turning away from you and being alienated from you. He's not alienated from you at all. He loves you. And our prayer is that every single one of you at this Christmas season will be home, will know that you're home, will know that you're home through the death and the resurrection and the forgiveness that only Jesus can bring. I trust that the hearts of the fathers, the hearts of the mothers, the hearts of all of us will turn back to the children that will all become childlike. Because except you become like a little child, you cannot inherit the kingdom of God.